Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday... It's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We are recording Thursday evening, less than 48 hours away from the playoffs getting underway at the Garden for the Seas as they get ready for Game 1 against Atlanta. And the Bees, of course, play on Monday. It's going to be a packed weekend here in Boston. Fantastic time of the year. And oh, by the way, the Red Sox absolutely stink right now. (laughs) And I'm officially concerned about Chris Sale. More on that later on. We're also going to chat with Zach Klein from WSB Channel 2 in Atlanta there. ABC affiliate to preview the Celtics Hawks series in particular. And he had an interesting back and forth with Trey Young earlier this season. We'll get into that with Zach as well. But I do want to start with the Celtics because as we alluded to, we're very close to the postseason for the Seas. And we'll call this the starting five. Five thoughts on the Celtics as we get ready for another playoff run. Okay, so number one is I feel so much better entering the postseason this year than I did last year. And look, I thought the Celtics would beat the Nets last season in the postseason, but I thought they should have ducked them. Remember, they had the opportunity to lose at the end of the season, and you don't have to play Kevin Durant in that team. I thought they should have ducked them. Clearly, I was wrong when it comes to that, right? Because not only did they sweep the Nets, but they also had Game 7 on their home floor against Milwaukee. But I thought the Celtics in that series against the Nets, it would be a difficult series. Even though I thought they would win, I thought... Okay, at least a six-game series, maybe a seven-game series. I did not think that it would be that dominant. I thought the Nets would scare the Celtics. I did not see Jason Tatum basically in that series stealing Kevin Durant's soul, where Durant, when he was facing Tatum as the primary defender, he was three for 18, 16.7%. Tatum blocked him twice, and Durant turned the basketball over 12 times. I did not see that coming. Call me crazy that I was worried about that series. And it wasn't just me, unless you were wearing basically like Celtics footy pajamas, you were concerned about the Nets, right? Even like I said, I thought they would win. You still had concerns, right? Like looking back, I was looking at the expert predictions for that series last year. ESPN had 21 experts predict the series. Everyone had at least a six game series and 10 of the 21 experts, if you will, 
picked the Brooklyn Nets to beat the Celtics in the first round. And now, if you look at this series coming up against Atlanta, game one at the Garden on Saturday, cannot wait. But anyway, I would be shocked if more than two experts this year picked this thing to go more than five games, right? So entering the playoffs last year, I had jitters for the opening round. And this year, I feel completely different. Last year, I was thinking to myself, oh man, will this whole season be all for naught if the Celtics lose to Kyrie in the first round? They cannot lose to Kyrie Irving. And remember the year prior, the Celtics got their ass kicked. And now this is when Brooklyn still, of course, had Harden. This is a bad situation for the Celtics at that particular point in time. But he was stepping on the leprechaun and all that. And Jalen was hurt. But I was just anxious about going up against that Brooklyn team because Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving were on the other team right now. As we would find out, (laughs) that was a complete dumpster fire. But nonetheless, this year entering the postseason, I feel calm and I feel confident. And another reason I'm calm is the Celtics, unlike last year entering the postseason, is they have a healthy Robert Williams. Remember last year, he was not ready to go coming off the knee surgery. And we had no idea exactly when he was coming back. We kept getting the timetable, but we didn't know exactly when it was going to be. We knew it would be at some point, but we also didn't know, hey, when Rob comes back, how effective is he going to be? And remember, they brought him back for game three against the Nets, and he played just 16 minutes, and then he played just 14 in game four. And as we saw, he wasn't Rob Williams at that particular point. And then in the Buck series, he played in just three of those games, and he never played north of 25 minutes. So he was basically a non-factor against Milwaukee. And then in the Heat series, he only played in six of the seven games. And he had some big games there. Game one, he was actually really good. He had 18 and nine, but he never really looked like himself until the NBA Finals. And even then, he wasn't the same guy. He was doing this on one leg. And I felt last year, this team cannot win a title without Robert Williams. And I believe this this year too, but just ask yourself this. If Rob's healthy last year, and he plays against Milwaukee for the entire series, does it go seven? Same thing against the Heat. If you have a healthy Rob Williams, not the guy on one leg against Miami, does it go seven games, right? So we've given you the impact metrics all season long with Rob. But remember, this team was gassed by the finals when Rob was playing his best. Like Rob was starting to get into shape and starting to get his conditioning back and starting to be that effective player that we saw when he was actually healthy. And the rest of the team was completely tired. And I'm not saying it's an excuse, But fatigue was a legitimate thing for Jason Tatum and those guys in the NBA Finals. So I just wonder what the difference would have been if you had a healthy Robert Williams before the Golden State Series, right? And all right, this year you have a healthy Rob. That's the biggest thing. Rob Williams is healthy right now, people. And since Rob has come back, he's played in seven games for the Celtics. They're six and one in those games. The only loss was that mind-numbing loss to the Washington Wizards, which I I would just like to forget. I mean, that basically cost the Celtics the one seed. But other than that, they're 6-1. and Rob's playing 20.7 minutes per game, 73% from the field. He's grabbing you 7.3 rebounds, 2.4 offensive rebounds, something the Celtics don't have when Rob's not in the court. And if you do that out per 36, 11 points, 12.6 rebounds, 1.7 assists, 4.2 rebounds per game. So the effectiveness is there. And more importantly, to, more importantly to me than just the numbers, so to speak, is we've seen the wow moments, right? Where you're like, oh, this is why this guy actually ranks out so well in the impact metrics. And I just give you one example of this. Go back in your mind to the Milwaukee game. And remember, Giannis is driving to the basket. He's trying to go through Grant Williams. Rob Williams comes out of nowhere and blocks him from behind. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, yeah. 
That's the guy they didn't have for the majority of the postseason last year, at least that version of himself, right? And in those seven games since Rob has returned, the Celtics with Rob on the court have a ridiculous 96.4 defensive rating, which is 13 and a half points better than the league's best defense this season. They have been dominant with Rob on the court. They are outscoring teams by 18.1 points per 100 possessions in Rob's last seven games. Now, look, a lot of the Celtics had good numbers during that stretch, but what's the common denominator in all this? It's Rob's back and Rob's effective. And I do think, just getting into a little bit of the Atlanta thing, and we'll chat more with Zach Klein in just a little bit about Atlanta in particular, this is a big Rob series. We gave you some of the rebounding numbers on Tuesday, but with Al and Rob on the court, They've been great rebounding, as we told you on Tuesday. But just think about this. Clint Capella is a major factor for Atlanta. He had eight offensive rebounds in that game against the Heat alone. He averaged 4.0 offensive rebounds per game this year, which was third in the NBA. 3.5 second chance points per game. That was eighth in the NBA. So this guy is going to get on the glass. He's very active. And the Hawks actually need it for their offense to be effective. And if you look at cleaning the glass, they are grabbing 30.2% of their misses, the Hawks, with Capella on the court. That's in the 82nd percentile, and it's a 4.2% increase for the Hawks when Capella's on the court, which is in the 87th percentile. So he is a major impact player for them in terms of the production he can bring to the table, crashing the offensive boards. The thing is, we've told you, the Celtics are an outstanding rebounding team. Now, if you look at their... Their opponent offensive rebounding rate, 24.1%. That's first in the NBA. And if you look at that number with Rob on the court via cleaning the glass, it's at 22.0. That's in the 99th percentile, okay? So with Rob on the court, they go to a totally different level from a rebounding perspective. So Rob's ability to change shots, obviously that's important. But more importantly, maybe in this series than anything else, is his ability to clean up on the defensive glass because that's part of the Hawks' ethos. That's part of their offense. They want to crash the glass. And Robert Williams should be able to factor in majorly in this series. And the other portion of that is this. We told you the other night, the Hawks are brutal. They're one of the worst transition defenses in the entire NBA. If Clint Clint Capella crashes and he's not getting those rebounds, well, guess what happens? Rob gets it. Quick outlet. The Celtics are going back the other way. So that's why I think Rob's a major factor in this series. And just to sort of put a bow on my first part of my starting five here, I just feel that this team is going to beat Atlanta relatively easily. I didn't feel that way against Brooklyn, even though it happened. And they didn't have Rob. So that's why, first of all, entering the postseason, I just feel so much better than I did a year ago. All right, number two on my starting five, five thoughts as the Celtics enter the postseason. I'm going to go with a guard at the two spot here. The Derek White factor. He's a totally different player. And he last year was a playoff liability. This year, he has been a major, major plus for the Celtics, right? And I just want to go down memory lane. Maybe it's not a great thing to do because this could get ugly here. Do you remember how bad Derek White was at times last postseason? Well, let me remind you. 25.4 minutes per game. He shot 36.4% from the floor and 31.3% from three. And I know he had a lot going on during the postseason. Remember, he missed a game due to the birth of his child, and he had just come over from the Spurs at the trading deadline. But think about all the stinkers he had. In that net series, he did not have a single double-digit game. At times, he was losing minutes to Peyton Pritchard. In games two and three, he played 27 total minutes, 0 of three from deep, five total points. He was a non-entity. Peyton Pritchard in those two games, 28 minutes, 20 points. So think about that. 15-point advantage for Peyton Pritchard over Derek White. Does anybody think this year that Peyton Pritchard will get minutes over Derek White? Okay, now, 
I like Peyton Pritchard. He's a good player. I actually feel bad at times that he's on the Celtics because he'd be playing for a lot of other teams. I mean, he had a 30-point triple-double the other night, right? But Derek White has just been so good this season. That would be insane if we actually saw Peyton Pritchard this year getting minutes over Derek White, but it was a real thing last year, and it made sense to do it, right? And part of it is, look, I'm the president of the Derek White fan club. We've established this, right? But last year, I have to admit, he was flat out bad in that postseason run. How about the Buck series? One of 10 from the field in game seven, zero points in another game in that series. How about the Heat series? His best game came in that loss in game six, where I actually thought he may make up for all the issues he had throughout the postseason, where he played well, 22 points on four. And he had what? He had four of his seven threes, five assists. And that was the big Jimmy Butler game where Jimmy Butler went nuts at the Garden, forced the game seven. But Derek White was good in that game, the 22 Points, but other than that, in that series, three points in 29 minutes, zero points in 14 minutes, 13 points in 41 minutes, 14 points in 29 minutes, eight points in 19 minutes. So 7.6 per game. And he had zero confidence with his three point shot. So other than that game six, O of one, O of O, didn't even take one, one of eight, O of two, two of three. So that's three for 14, 21.4%. And remember what was happening. He was either afraid to shoot or in the case of game five, he was just bricking everything, right? He was one for eight. And Miami essentially was daring him to shoot the basketball because Milwaukee had just done the same thing to him in that previous series. So because he lost his confidence, teams could smell it, right? They were daring him to shoot. They were daring him to do it. And he did not react well to that, right? Even in the finals, final two games of that series, three points total on one of 10 from the field and 0 of five from three. So in every series, he was a problem offensively because the spacing was fucked up because he either would not shoot, he was scared to pull the trigger, or he would just miss him. Okay, so if you look at the catch-and-shoot threes in the playoff run last year, he was 20 of 68, which is south of 30%, 29.4% to be exact. So he was not playable at times. He was just, those numbers are horrendous. This season, what did Derek White do? He became a really good catch-and-shoot three-point shooter, 121 of 310. 39%. That's better than Grant Williams, who's like the king of the the catch and shoot three from the corner, right? So 39%. He worked at this a lot. And that's not a small sample. That was 310 catch and shoot threes he took this past season. So he's up about 10 percentage points from where he was in last year's postseason. So this is not a coincidence. We knew that he needed to improve there, and he did. So, okay, you're not going to be glued to him in terms of the spacing, right? Like, you're not treating... Him like he's Clay Thompson or Ray Allen, prime Ray Allen. But if you do leave him and he's open, this year the difference is going to be he's going to knock down those threes. And he's going to have the confidence to take those shots because he's been hitting them all year. Last year he was either missing them or he was just passing on them, right? So because White had all these issues shooting the ball last year or he wouldn't shoot the ball, the impact was not there with Derek White. So if you look at it, White in last year's postseason run was just a plus nine, totally a plus nine. Tatum was plus 108, Al was plus 99, Jalen plus 73, Rob plus 73, Pritchard was plus 56, okay? White was plus 9, Smart was plus 32. And the Celtics were actually plus 77 with Derek White off the floor. So they were crushing teams with him off the court and barely getting by with him on the court because of his poor shooting and his lack of confidence to actually take the shots. The Celtics last year in that postseason run, had just a 106.1 offensive rating with White on the floor. They had a 112.0 without him. That 112.0 number is not a good one, but that 106.1, 
is actually atrocious. Only three teams were worse than that last year in the NBA. So basically, with Derek White on the court in the playoffs last year, the Celtics played like a bottom four offense in the NBA. And this is Derek White, the king of the plus minus, right? You look at him this year, plus 488. That is fourth in the entire NBA. Fourth in the entire NBA. That's behind three nuggets, Jokic and two other nuggets. So fourth in the entire league. And he was just a plus nine last year. And this year, the Celtics had a 118.2 offensive rating with White on the floor, trailing only Tatum and Al on the team. Only the Kings were north of 118.2 on the season in terms of their offensive rating. The Celtics, with Derek White on the court, basically played like a top two offense in the NBA. After last year, they played like a bottom four offense with White on the court in the postseason. So that's my second thought. Derek White will impact the game in a very positive way, and he won't be a liability. Like, it's going to be night and day for Derek White. He's going to be willing to take threes. He's going to knock down threes. He's not going to be scared to take threes, and he's going to impact this whole playoff run in a major way, unlike last year, where Ime was justified in not playing him at times because he was just so ineffective. All right, my third part of the starting five is something we've talked about this season, but I do want to shed some more light on it. Malcolm Brogdon brings a new wrinkle to this team, right? So you've heard me talk about his drive game and his ability to get into the paint before, but here's a big one too. The Celts last year in the playoffs... They got in trouble sometimes when their ball movement got stagnant and they had to play in isolation situations. And the problem was Jason Tatum was really bad in isolation in the postseason. He was just 111 of 298, 37.2%. Jalen Brown was a lot better than Tatum, but Tatum was bad. Brogdon this year has been above average. He's in the 63rd percentile when it comes to isolation. So we know he can go get you a bucket, right? And the thing is, Tatum and Jalen Brown are going to get the better wing defenders And if you're going to put a smaller defender on Malcolm Brogdon, he can clearly overpower that guy, right? And the problem is, if Brogdon's out there with either Tatum or Jalen Brown, you're going to have a difficult time trying to find a good matchup for Brogdon because, well, I mean, if you put a big wing on him, well, then what are you doing with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, right? So it's just another card they have to play. And really, his final six games of the season, doing a much better job driving, nine points per game in his final six Only Brown and Tatum average more, or I should say nine points per game in the paint in his final six. Only Brown and Tatum average more for the Celtics. And he's starting to get turned up to the point where, okay, they were careful about the injuries throughout the season, but down the final stretch, the final six games of the season, now a lot of other guys played eight. He only played six. He was up to 28.4 minutes per game, which was fourth on the team behind Tatum, Brown, and Smart. Before that, he was seventh in minutes at 25.8. So an increase of three down the stretch, and he went from five points per game in the paint to nine. So it does feel like this was sort of strategic, where get this guy to the finish line healthy, and then get this thing going for Malcolm Brogdon. So it does feel like they sort of paced him, similar to Al Horford, and now they're ready to unleash him in the postseason, right? The other thing is this, like outside of Tatum and Brown, they don't have guys that were scoring threats out of the pick and roll last year. Smart is a really good distributor out of the pick and roll, but he's not a guy that's going to score out of it. And this year, Brogdon was in the 81st percentile as a pick and roll ball handler with a 52.2% effective field goal percentage. So he did a ton in terms of, he didn't do a ton of it, I should say, in terms of throughout the season, but he is starting to get ramped up and he can create his own shot, right? In terms of he can run a pick and roll, he can score or he can distribute. He can create his own shot in the pull-up game. 45.2% on pull-ups overall, 44.8% on pull-up threes. 
So he can get his own jumper, and he's a good catch-and-shoot guy. 69 of 156 on catch-and-shoot threes. That was 44.2%, which is just downright elite. So here's the thing about Brogdon, which I think he's gotten better with this throughout the season. He can get his own shot. We all knew that when he came over from Indiana. But now he's doing a much better job spacing when he's on the court with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, who are going to be the high-usage guys, okay? And not many bucket cutters can adjust to that, right? So it's taken a little bit of time for Brogdon. But most guys are either... Hey, you're a catch-and-shoot player, or you're a guy that's going to break your guy down off the dribble. See, what happened with Brogdon, he was such a high-usage guy in Indiana, he had to adjust back to playing with better players than him, like when he was with Milwaukee and he was playing with the Giannis's and the Chris Middleton's of the world, and now it feels like he's finally there. So that's my number three in my starting five. Brogdon brings this offense to another level, and he gives them another dimension when shit gets tough in the playoffs and you're not getting your easy shots. All right, number four in my starting five. Five thoughts before the Celts start the postseason. Playoff Al is ready, baby, okay? One of my biggest fears, and we shared this on the pod before the season, was without Robert Williams to start the year, I felt like they could overuse Al. I was very worried about this, as you guys probably remember. And if you look at the start of the season through the end of January, 40 games for Al, he was at 30.9 minutes per game. That was fourth on the team. And up until that point, I was still a little bit concerned about Al. But from the start of February through the end of the season, they cut the minutes down to 29.9. So you cut that down a little bit, and that was fifth on the Celtics, right? And remember, they never played him in back-to-backs. That was massive. They didn't do that last year either, but it was massive. So they managed to keep him south of 2,000 minutes, unlike last year. Okay, now barely 1,922, but he was over 2,000 last year. So it was six less games, it was no back-to-backs, and he didn't go over 2,000 minutes. So Al, although I was worried early... I don't see the mileage being an issue for him in the postseason. And they did. Now, he switched a lot, but they switched less than they did last season. Maybe part of that, too, was preserving Al for the stretch run. So Al, by the way, he looked fresh down the stretch as well, as we allude to. And his three-point percentage from February through the end of the season went all the way up to 48.1% after being at 42.2% prior to that. So still really, really good, right? I mean, 42.2% is great, but he climbed six percentage points at the end of the season there. And now, like I always liked Al as a player, but he had a huge impact last year. Nobody can dispute that. He was great for this team in the postseason. He had great moments too, like going back and forth with Giannis and all that. But now you can't leave Al Horford, right? He can legitimately knock down threes and he's a legit threat there. Remember last year during the regular season, he was at what, 33.6%. Below average. This year, that number is up to 44.6%. So he climbed 11 percentage points and he went from 3.8 attempts per game from three to 5.2. So he's almost bombing from three this season, right? So he got better with volume and he actually finished second in the league behind only Luke Kennard. And as a big man, he gets a lot of spot up opportunities, right? It's not even just like catch and shoots. It's if he's not the screener, he's just sitting out there on the wing or he's in the corner as sort of like a spacer. Al as a spot up jump shooter this year, 95th percentile, 67% effective field goal percentage, 1.32 points per possession. Ridiculous. He's an automatic bucket as a spot up guy. So here's the thing about the spot up situation. If Tatum is driving and robs the screener, if you have Al in the wing and Derek White in the corner, It puts the defense in a bind. Like, what's your decision? Are you coming off Al? Because if you come off Al, Tatum's going to hit Al for a three. If you don't come off Al, Tatum's getting downhill. Are you cheating out of the corner? Then he's going to find Derek White for a wide open three, or he's getting all the way to the basket. So it just puts the defense in a bind with Al's now reputation as a better shooter than he's been in previous seasons. Or how about this? If you leave the wing open 
and Al is in the corner and Rob's setting the screen and Tatum goes to his left, are you cheating off Al in the corner, which is an even easier three-point shot. So Al's flame-throwing ability puts defenses in a real bad situation right now. So Al looking fresh down the stretch and getting better in his 36-year-old season, adding this new level of marksmanship is even more impactful for the Celtics. This is another thing I feel better about entering the postseason is Al Horford's ability to just be an incredible shooter. My final piece to the starting five, five thoughts as the Celtics start their postseason run. There appears to be the fuck you is back with this team. The fuck you is back, people. What do I mean by this? Remember when they started the season, they were 21 and five, and it seemed like they wanted to kill everybody, right? Like they were so mad about what transpired in the NBA finals. They just wanted to prove that they were better than everybody else in the NBA. And they did. They were 21 and five. And then they sort of lost that edge along the way, right? I think we can all agree on that. They had really bad losses in there, but last 10 games to finish out the season, the Celtics went eight and two. And I know they had that weird Washington loss in there, which I still, like I said earlier, I'll never understand that, but they kind of made up for it by beating Milwaukee by 41 points. They had one no-show, but other than that, they were dominant. Remember, they almost beat Philly and they didn't have Jalen Brown or Robert Williams in that game and they still almost beat Philly. And during this stretch run, the final 10 games for the Celtics, they outscored teams by 15.6 points per 100 possessions. Second best during that stretch was Golden State at 13.2. So more than two points better than Golden State. Nobody else was north of eight during that stretch. So they were by far the best team in the NBA the final 10 games of the season. They, by the way, had the league's best defense down the stretch. Second on the season, but final 10 games, they were by far the best at 105.8. Golden State was second at 108.6, so a 2.8 difference there, all right? And that's the same gap that Golden State and the eighth-ranked defense had, Denver. That's how wide the gap was in terms of how much better the Celtics were defensively than anybody else. And remember what Al Horford said recently. Even though the number says we finished second, I actually do believe there's a lot of room for improvement for our group. I believe that we will do that. I'm excited. It's a challenge for us, but we definitely want to be better defensively, okay? So now this is one of the leaders of the team, Al Horford, challenging his teammates, right? I mean, in some sense, challenging his teammates, we can be better. We can be better than we were for the majority of the season. I truly believe they can get back now that Rob's healthy, going back to our original point. Now that Rob is fully back, they can get back to being that team that is just flat out dominant defensively and can say, hey, we're shutting you down like they did to the Nets. Like they did to Milwaukee, they shut those teams down. I mean, I know Milwaukee won seven games, but they did nothing from an offensive perspective outside of Giannis getting to the free throw line. So I'm feeling very confident. And I'm feeling like the duck boats are now really a real possibility here. I'm feeling very confident entering this postseason run. All right, coming up next, we'll preview the first round series against the Atlanta Hawks with Zach Klein. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from WSB Channel 2 in Atlanta, the ABC affiliate out there. It is Zach Klein. Zach, how are you, man? I'm living the dream, Bri. How are you, my friend? Um, I have a feeling, as I was telling you moments ago, that this conversation might be a little bit longer than the series between your Celtics and the Hawks here in Atlanta. 
but I'm happy to bring it as we uh, hopefully the Hawks can do for at least a game or two. Yeah. And last year, and I was saying this earlier, I was so nervous about the Brooklyn Nets. I'm very confident entering the series against the Atlanta Hawks. <laughs> now, it turned out the Celtics like disposed of the Nets very easily, but I was worried before that. But real quickly, before we get into this series, the Red Sox, they just got swept by the Rays. And I know you guys are familiar with Adam Duvall there, of course, won a gold glove a couple of years ago, part of that World Series team. But then last year he goes down. He went down on Sunday. Since then, the Red Sox have not won a game. I mean, maybe it's the Red Sox own problem that you got to be so dependent on a guy like Adam Duvall. But man, <laughs> like they really miss him already. Like, did, did they love him in Atlanta or what? Great clubhouse guy, Brian. He was always there for his teammates, always instructing and helping out the younger guys. Uh, was always early to arrive to the ballpark, did it the right way. You know, the Braves have this culture, and it's kind of cliched the Braves way, right? But going back to the era of Bobby Cox, if you weren't that guy, if you were a clubhouse cancer, you were gone. So if you see some of the guys that have left the organization over the years, they just did not fit in. So you looked at Adam, obviously, you know, getting a, a few more dollars on the free agent market. The Braves have this youth movement. They have this young core. You understand why he's not here, as it has nothing to do with him as a person. And you kind of see what he meant to, uh, you know, your clubhouse. When he's not there, they're struggling. Uh, a great guy, great ball player. Uh, you're lucky to have him, but, you know, hopefully he can get healthy to help you guys turn things around. Yeah, while we're on that subject, how are the Braves so good at signing all their young players? Like, Raphael Devers is a great player, but they're paying him $330 million because they waited until this offseason to give him the extension. How do the Braves seemingly get this done with like everybody besides Dansby Swanson, Swanson rather? So maybe everybody they want to sign, they get signed. How does this happen? Well, they, 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 they love Dansby Swanson. He's a homegrown kid. I remember talking to him after the way they won the World Series in Houston a few years ago. He's like, Zach, did you understand what's going on? I grew up with Braves posters in my room of Chipper Jones. Now Chipper's <laughs> my hitting instructor. Now I just won the city, the first world series since the mid 1990s. So they wanted Dansby, what he meant to this club. They just didn't want him at $177 million. And I think yeah. the Braves just will not overpay. So the original question, how they get this done, they're willing to risk and bet early under, you know, pay a little bit more for an earlier guy, obviously. I mean, they got Ronald Acuna at 10 years and a hundred and some 10 million bucks. <laughs> Are you it's kidding? Crazy. He's making a, it's, it's absolutely crazy when you have guys making 35, 40, 45 million a year. That's you get two years out of a, an Aaron Judge and you get basically nine years out of a, a Ronald Acuna Jr. So they're betting on these guys. They locked up Spencer Strider last year. He pitched one year in the big leagues. That one year was second in the National League Rookie of the Year honor. The dude became the fastest player in baseball history to hit, what, 200 strikeouts and go all these innings. So we're going to give you 55 million bucks. We're going to bet on that as opposed to having to pay you $30 million a year like they probably will let Max Fried go. Max Fried's an L.A. guy, grew up root for the Dodgers. The Dodgers, they got no problem spending money. They will probably offer him, you know, what, maybe four years and, you know, $180 million bucks. The, the Braves will not. They let him go, and that's kind of been the recipe for the success. Invest in this core early, be in contention every single year. They're going for their sixth straight NL East championship. That bring, they had 3.1, Brian million people go to the ballpark last year. Why? Because you are winning. There is a chance. This year, for the first time in the history of their franchise, they stopped selling season tickets. And they did that to allow fans who might want to come in from the regional market, from an Alabama, Mississippi, or Florida, to go buy tickets day of game and go see the Braves play. 
Yeah, well, it must be nice to have, like, the Red Sox used to have a good general manager, Theo Epstein. It'd be nice to have somebody like that and not Heim Bloom. And maybe Dave Dombrowski was actually good at his job, but they decided to move on from him. And by the way, some gambling advice. Our friends at FanDuel, I always take the Spencer Strider strikeout prop. That guy is always striking it. Even if he doesn't have a good outing, he's still going to have seven, eight strikeouts. So I always bet on that. The only thing I hope... Zach, is that Atlanta doesn't get the good version of John U. Smith if that actually actually exists because he was so bad for the Patriots. I know there's a connection there with Arthur Smith and going back to the Tennessee days when he was the offensive coordinator there. But if John U. Smith is a good is good in Atlanta, I'm going to lose my mind because he was so bad for the Patriots. And I was like all in. I'm like, you know what's going to happen? They found a diamond in the rough. Like if they just use him more, he's going to be good. So I cannot I cannot deal with right. him being good in Atlanta. What version are you going to get out of him? Are you going to get the early version when he had a few years ago in Tennessee under Arthur Smith and that offense? Or what you guys were like, I had a re- when was the last time the dude found the end zone? Like what, once last year or something like that? To go to your point about him, I, I think Arthur will find creative ways to get him the ball in space. And he's hard to bring down. He does make a, a guy miss here or there. So I like the pick. I mean, we didn't get really much anything. Uh, a, a nice move to, to add him to uh, hopefully a, a healthy Kyle Pitt. So listen, man, it's crazy to think that the stock for our NFL team might be a little higher than yours. Uh, but, you know, I don't know if I'm saying anything positively about both teams, but I think the Falcons are definitely on the rise. Yeah, a lot of drama here for sure. All right. So let's get into the Hawks because. Yeah. So before we get into the series specifically, Trey Young, you guys have a little bit of a history here. So correct me if I'm wrong on this one. So basically the Hawks are getting ready to play the Nuggets. And this is when Nate McMillan was the coach, right? And McMillan reportedly asked Trey whether he would participate in shoot around, receive treatment and do the walkthrough and then play in the game. Then Trey made it clear that he wanted to focus on the treatment, miss shoot around and decide later if he wanted to play. McMillan wasn't okay with that, so he had two options. Play off the bench or don't show up, and then Trey didn't show up to the game. So what happened after that? Because now you are all over, it's all over social media, the back and forth that you and Trey had after this. It's about accountability. And, you know, my job as a team, I've been here 15 years. So listen, man, I've outlived every general manager, almost every owner, every star player, every head coach, every athletic director. I'm not going anywhere. You know, and I, I take pride uh, on being out there. You know, I got ripped. They're like, who's this TV guy flying in and asking? Tra- I, I, we go to these events. I go to these games. I get right. out of the office. So I'm talking to Trey and he's, I said, you know, you, you weren't there. Why weren't you there? And he says, it's a private conversation. I wish it stays in, in the house. It should be private. You're an outside guy. And I said, <laughs> Trey, I, I respect that. But you made it public by not going to the game. If you'd have gone to the game and either sat on the bench or gone inside, we wouldn't have known about it, but you didn't go to the game because you did not want to come off the bench. So I pressed him on it. He looked at me like, yo, Z, like you're kind of my guy. Like, why, why are you, you know, talking, you know, whatever. And you're pushing me. I'm like, well, it's about accountability. And I understand that you want to keep those private conversations in house, but you didn't go to a basketball game. And can you imagine he's, he's his, his, his guy is, is Kobe. What was Kobe? Can you imagine Kobe Bryant, not healthy or but even if he wasn't healthy, he wasn't sick, didn't have COVID, not going to a game. And A, B, rather, not going to a game, Brian, because he wasn't going to come off the bench. He didn't want to come off the bench. How would he even receive? Kevin Durant, LeBron, any superstar in any major city, if they don't go, into, go to a game, they are going to get questioned. And Trey was like baffled. How do you, how are you asking me wh- why I wasn't there? So I pressed him on it because he didn't give me an answer. I pressed him. And he finally said, well, I, I was hurt. And I said, well, John Collins was in a freaking walking boot. He was there. <laughs> so don't tell me you were hurt. You, you, you were being pouty and you didn't like it. You didn't want to go. Just say that. 
So it blows up. You know, I got people killing me and, you know, my son's got to turn off Twitter because people are asking me that you should die, Klein. You suck and all this other crap. And Jeez. I said, listen, but I, I heard from a few players. I heard from a few office, uh, um, front office management guys, guys around the league who saw it. And they said, Z, all the dude had to say, even if he didn't mean a single word, all Trey Young had to say was, my bad. I'm yeah. sorry. I should have been there for my teammates. I got to support them. If I'm hurt, I got to go and take care of my guys and cheer on who's ever playing that day. Never said that. He was still basically going dying on his hill that it was okay to miss a game because he was hurt. How many guys are hurt and they might not want to be on the bench because the injury, if somebody flies into them, like we see in the NBA games, so they, they watch it from the locker room. They, they're hanging out with the trainers or the equipment guys back. He didn't do any of that. He was at home because the dude didn't want to come off the bench. And that's how we got into it and pressed. But, you know, I saw him that, last, saw him that night uh, that we got into it. I said, hey, man, we coach, are we good? That we're good. So move on from there. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because he's got to be one of the more difficult guys to play with in the NBA because you got to cover up for so much that he does defensively. And if he's going to have that type of attitude, it's got to be, I, I would imagine, at times, tough on his teammates if he's doing that. Now, the other thing I would say just about Trey in general here is, so he didn't get along with Nate McMillan. He, he didn't get along with Lloyd Pierce, it would appear as well, of course. So now... What's sort of like the perception of him there in Atlanta? Like, does the fan base love the guy, or are they starting to question whether or not they want him to be the star of the team? A little bit of both. Um, they want him to be the star of the team. He is a dynamic player. I mean, the dude led the NBA in assists again. He can score at will. But you have to show a little bit of defensive effort, and that's what bothers his teammates. The fact that he... Sometimes, not all the time, obviously, but sometimes he burns you, Brian, at both ends. He'll four seconds in the shot clock, the dude will launch a 35-footer, and then he won't, he'll miss, and he won't get back on the other end. So now he smoked you on both ends. They want him to be consistent. They want him uh, you know, to, to get his teammates involved. Very cliche, but true. They want him to lead. And the problem you have here is that your best player is not your best leader. And that, that's very hard to win with, right? I think, you know, they're in this, this tough predicament, Brian, where do you blow up the team? Do you start from scratch? I am kind of in that mode because Trey has done it his way and he's gotten to be one of the best players in the league by doing it his way. He, everybody from the day he was, you know, could dribble. You're too short. You're too skinny. You'll never be a high school star. I was, you'll never get a D1 offership. I was a five uh, scholarship. I was, I was a five-star. You'll never make it to the NBA. I did. I'm an all-star. So he's doing all these things his way. So when it comes to a coach telling him, well, you need to do something different. You need to play defense. You need to do this. He's basically like, no, I'm good, right? I, I've, 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 I've succeeded to this point my way. I'm going to tune you out. However, while I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that maybe we see something with Quinn Snyder, the new head coach of the Hawks, is that Quinn is really smart. And if you are going to impress Trey, you, you got to match X's and O's wits with him. These guys need to break bread. They need to grab a meal, get some wine, and talk basketball. And I think if Quinn can prove his worth, that I can get you in the right positions, and trust me on the basketball IQ, then we might have some forward progress with Trey being a leader. And if he leads, then this team can take that next step. Yeah, so do you think ultimately, I know there was that reporting out that they were basically, they have the green light if they want to move on from Trey to your point about maybe blowing this thing up. Do you think ultimately it's going to be Quinn Snyder's decision whether or not they Without build around question. Trey? I mean, that's one reason why he took the job now. I mean, well, yeah. hey, he's, you know, I have a couple guys in the league tell me, listen, whatever the Hawks do in the free agent market coming up, this will be their number one free agent acquisition in Quinn Snyder. 
He took the job with 20-something games left on the schedule to evaluate how Trey, and for, to, be, to be fair, everybody else on this team, the dynamics of it. What are they like on the road? How are they with the media? How are they with sponsors? How are they interacting on the bus? He is observing everything, and that will be a huge, huge factor on what he sees and what he wants to do moving forward. Keep in mind that the, the staff that we have here in Atlanta, the front office, is relatively inexperienced. You have Landry Fields, the general manager, only been on the job you know, for a, a couple years, 30-something years old. He hired uh, Kyle Korver with zero front office experience. He's now the assistant general manager. And then you have Quinn, who, you know, which crazy is everybody thinks that Quinn's like the young guy. Like he's the young. He's, he's like, I think he's like a year younger than Nate McMillan, which is just crazy to me because, you know, Nate looks like this. He's got the beard. He's got the gray. Yeah. And, you know, Quinn's got the hair, but they're relatively the same age. So uh, I think the experience from Quinn and being in the league for so long and having so much success and having so much credibility will definitely shape the mold of this team moving forward. Uh, and Landry's really smart, Brian. He, he's there. He's a connection piece. He understands the, the importance of uh, culture and chemistry. So I think that the two heads will work really well together. I do believe it will be a collaborative effort moving forward. But without question, to, uh, a long way of answering your question, yes, Quinn took the job towards the end of the season to evaluate Trey and decide whether he's going to do uh, with his team moving forward in the offseason. Okay, so with this series in particular, I was looking at some of the numbers for Trey's at 33.5% this year from three, which was 131st out of 149 qualifiers, did not shoot the, the three particularly well this year. He does draw a lot of fouls, 8.8 attempts per game, which is six in the NBA. Now, the thing about the Celtics is they really don't foul. They do a really good job of not fouling. So is based on those three-point numbers, is this just a situation where Trey Young needs to get to the free throw line to be successful at this point? And I mean, I don't know why, like, have, the numbers have never been great for him shooting the three, which kind of surprises me because usually when he shoots it, it looks like it's going, it, like Tatum has this problem too. Like you would think Tatum's like a 42% three-point <laughs> shooter and he's not. He's actually been below average the past two years. But does Trey need to live at the line to have that offense be successful? I think so. And I think, you know, one thing I will say to his credit, uh, not only can he flat out score, but he's a tough individual. Like he he is, you know, 180 something pounds soaking wet, but he is not afraid to get after, get in the paint, draw contact, get to the free throw line. Uh, yes, he needs, you know, listen, man, when, when he back, you know, when they made that Eastern Conference final run, Brian, two years ago, when they upset the, the 76ers and beat the Knicks and or you know, basically a game and a half away from beating the Bucks on the way to the NBA finals. He was so involved in the pick and roll with Capella. So I think if he can beat your guys off the dribble at the top of the key, not settle for a 28-footer and try to hit the home run and impress the crowd and be on all the highlight shows, if he can just be patient, work it, get that pick and roll game. I mean, we saw what happened, which blew me away, what they were able to do in game one with Miami. They were a physical team. They actually played a little defense. They got some rebounds. I'm like, who is this Hawks team that we haven't seen for 82 games? Like, I was <laughs> blown away, man. I, I did not expect that at all. Um, and, but they showed it to us. So is it there? Yes, obviously. But is it there consistently? I don't think so. Uh, but Trey will have to take over. He will need to distribute the ball. He will need to get to the free throw line. He will need to run the pick and roll with Capella and get some of the big guys, uh, some easy dunks. That's the only way the Hawks keep us being competitive. Yeah, well, you mentioned Capella, and look, maybe I'm just scarred because most of the games I see Bam play, he dominates. Like, he's been so good against the Celtics throughout his career. I've never seen somebody punk him like the way that Capella punked him the other night. Like, he just completely outplayed him. What, he get eight offensive rebounds? And I'm looking at it on the season. What, he's third in offensive rebounds per game. How important is he in terms of keeping them in this series? He's huge. And, you know, he and the health of Bogdan Bogdanovich, you know, bogey healthy this time of year is huge for this team. He wasn't there a year ago when they lost in five games in the opening round 
uh, series to the Miami Heat. They got punked in that series. Trey was absolutely awful. He felt he had to do too much, and then it gets him out of his game. Uh, Capella, what I love about him, Brian, is he understands his role. He embraces his role. He is a leader in terms of his actions. He wants other guys to be physical. He wants other guys to not give up and grab the offensive rebound, go to the basket, protect the rim. When he's not on the floor, look for you guys to collapse, attack the rim, try to get some easy buckets because he's such a presence and he embraces that. I remember talking to him last year. I said, listen, on a scale of one to 10, what's the defensive effort in the regular season? And what does it need to be in the postseason? And he's like, Z, you know, in the regular season, it's probably like a three or four. But when it gets to the postseason, you got to be like a nine or 10. Now, conversely, I asked that same question to Trey. And he's like, man, if we don't play offense, if we don't score, we can't win. So he gave me like no answer. Like he's not even on his, he's not even on his radar, right? He was like a zero and a zero. But that's just the way he is. But Capella embraces that. So, yes, he, he, he is a huge part of this team. Um, he's not what he was. But as you saw in the Miami game, it, and with some rest, which you're going to see in the series, you're not having back-to-backs. There's going to be a couple days between games. That helps him. It helps his body. Uh, listen, man, he, he's got to be that presence he's, he was against Bam and a very physical B team that also loves to play some defense as well. Okay, what about the Trey Young-Murray pairing? Because I was looking at it, the points per 100 possessions with them on the court together, they've actually been outscored, not by a lot, like less than a point. But is that is it kind of been like a your turn, my turn type thing that they just not really have the on-court chemistry right now? They're trying to feel each other out. I mean, DeJounte is such a stud. He is a leader. He wants his team uh, to embrace that winning culture that Pop instilled in him in San Antonio, right? He understands what it takes. Now, they didn't win, obviously, but he understands what it takes to build a winning culture uh, and get it done. It's going to take some time, but, you know, Trey's got to maybe embrace the role that at certain nights when DeJounte's feeling it, let him go. Let him cook. Let him have that. You don't have to be the guy every night. And sometimes we've seen not Trey freeze him out. That's not what I'm trying to get across, but you know, Hey, I got to get mine too. That's just his attitude, right? To get him in his offensive rhythm, to get him in his flow of the game. He feels that, you know, sometimes he's got to take over as well. So you got two strong personalities, Trey a little bit more stronger, a little bit more ball dominant, but he's got to be able to move without it. He says he wants to do that. He says he can do that. But to your point, we, we got to see it. Uh, DeJounte hugely successful with the ball in his hands. He's always looking for the open teammate. Uh, he can get to the rim. He can get to the free throw line. He can knock down the open three. So I think there's an opportunity for those guys to get together. You know, it's been 80, what, four games that they've had the opportunity to work to, together. Should Trey be here next year, you think Quinn can get those guys to see eye to eye and really come to have a common goal. All right. So one thing we know about this Hawks team is, and maybe they've been better. I'm not sure with Quinn Snyder, if there's been anything. I don't know if it's just a personnel thing in terms of the defense has been bad all year. 22nd in rating, 22nd in half court rating, 25th in field goal percentage. Again, so they've been pretty bad defensively by the numbers this season. So to get into the weeds and maybe hit on that Quinn Snyder thing, if they've been any better with Quinn, but I'm wondering like, who are the guys they're going to put on Tatum and Brown? Is it Hunter? And then if it's Hunter, who do they put on Jalen? Like who, how are they going to match up with the big wings of the seas? That's why this series is over in four games. <laughs> Five at best, right? You know, I think they can fake it for a little bit to your point. I mean, the Hawks do have some athleticism. They do have some guys. You mentioned DeAndre Hunter, um, you know, who can be a big in terms of his athleticism and his wingspan and kind of create some some havoc in there. But listen, we, they just can't hang with those guys for 40, 42 minutes a game. It's just, it's just not going to happen. You saw what happened during the regular season. Close for a little bit. You know, every NBA game has a run. Hawks make a run. Celtics make a run at the end. Celtics winning all three games during uh, the regular season. So I think that's what we're going to see now. You mentioned the defensive effort from this team. They don't play defense. 
It was kind of like what Sacramento was doing throughout the entire season, right? They're, Listen, we're going to shoot threes. We're going to have fun. We're going to get some alley-oops. We're not playing defense. That's just what we are. Then Quinn comes in, and I remember talking to him. There was one play I saw where there was a, a, a pick and roll. There was a switch, and one Hawks player did not switch, and he went like this. I don't know if it's a video pod or a, an audio, you know, an audio, but he kind of threw his hands up like, you know, what the hell's going on here? And he is trying to instill, and he called, burned a timeout, was starting to talk to the guys. He's, he's implementing that message in these guys that the way to win is obviously you got to play well, you got to shoot well, but you have to play difference, uh, defense. Brian, you've been covering this game a long time. Every time you listen to the post game, whether it's in the Western Conference, the Eastern Conference, whether it's LeBron, whether it's the Miami Heat, whether it's your guys, Talk to the players after the game. Talk to the coaches. Man, what a defensive performance it was. They always mention the playoff intensity defensively in the postseason. You're not going to win without it, without clamping down. We've seen it so many times a year. A huge defensive possession is the turning point of the game. The Hawks, they have no pride. They don't care other than Capella wanting to do that. It's, it's just really it's tough to see, man. It's brutal. Yeah, and then how about John Collins? Because I know he's been dealing with this finger thing, but and you look at it, the three-point shooting is, what, 29.2%, and he used to be, like, a good three-point shooter. I know he's always on the trade block. Like, I think he's been traded, like, eight times, yet he's still <laughs> on the Hawks. Can he just not shoot anymore? Is, is it because of that, whatever it is, that finger issue? It was. So he had the finger issue a, a year ago in the Miami series. He wasn't healthy at all. It, it showed he's fine now. There's no issues with that right now. He's kind of, uh, you know, gathered his swagger a little bit down the stretch. He's on the trade block because he's a young guy who is a great team guy who is very athletic and he's willing to do whatever it, it takes, right? He can defend, he can score, he can alley-oop, he can hit the outside jumper, he can 18 feet from the sideline, he can, can occasionally knock down the three. So I think when you look at his potential and his salary, I think it was four years and a little over hundred million bucks, like it, 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 it could be a nice complimentary piece to a team that's close to taking that next step. You know, is he, is he your 1B? Is he your Batman? Is he your Pippin? No, but I think he could be a nice, compelling piece to a team that's looking to take the next step. And he's just a great guy. He's one of my favorite people on the team. He's unbelievable in the community. He'll do whatever it takes. Uh, I love him as a person. I think he's a fantastic you know, basketball, a basketball player for what you ask him to do. You don't need to be the hero every night. Do the little things. But it, it's between the ears with him with, it, with his shot. Uh, because sometimes when you miss a shot, your point guard, all right, there it goes. Yeah. You ain't going to knock down. I don't get an assist. <laughs> you don't get the ball for a while. So I think you put some of that pressure on him to step up in front of Trey, in front of DeJounte. And he did go through a cold uh, stretch, especially, Brian, to start the season. Yeah, my biggest takeaway from this conversation so far, it doesn't feel like it's fun to be be Trey Young's teammate. It does not feel like a lot of fun at all. Listen, man, look at the year Kevin Herter had. Yeah. Unreal. All that handoff stuff, it's a bonus, hitting threes. It's a great point. Like, Herter's had by far his best season, and it's without... Trey Young. I mean, <laughs> maybe Trey Young just doesn't make other guys better. So, hey, before we let you go, I did want to ask you about Al and how he'll be welcomed back to Atlanta, because I was thinking about it, too, the other day. He was on that team that gave the Celtics hell in 2008 when they had Garnett and Pierce. You had a young Al Horford who was obviously when he's in Atlanta, I, I think he took like five threes his rookie year. There was a couple of years there early where he didn't take a single three. And now he's turned in terms of like a just like a spacer, he's one of the best three-point shooters in the league. I mean, only Luke Kennard had a higher percentage. So, like, yeah, how's I, I Al? He, he was ahead. on that 2016 team, right? That beat yes, you guys. I, think I, I was yep. in Boston for that series covering the Hawks when they beat you guys. I think they won, uh, you know, four games to two. Yep. I was there, I think, when, when, they, when they clinched. I think it was he is the only guy uh, for, the, for the Hawks that was, obviously was on that, uh, that roster. 
I think Smart well, was on uh, was Boston then. I think. Yeah, he was. Uh, yep. so, yeah, he's the only one left. So, yeah, he's the only, only one, one left. left. So it's crazy. I, it's it's crazy, right? So I listen, man. You know, Al did nothing wrong here. You know, I think they'll give him a great ovation. He's been back obviously many times. Yeah. You know, they should boo him as they would any opponent, but nothing but love. I mean, the Hawks were never going to match what you know uh, what was out there on the market for him at the time. Uh, man, I'd love to be Al Wolford. He's got a good gig, man. What north of about a quarter billion dollars? Great family, you know, kind of relatively low key. Uh, stays out of the limelight. No, he's a beautiful human. We love him here in Atlanta, and I would expect him to get a nice ovation to start and then boo the rest of the series. Okay, so I said before I let you go, but this I promise is the last one because I got to ask because you're in Atlanta. How mm-hmm. often does somebody bring up twenty eight to three? Is that like a daily thing? Is it? Once a week? Is it every week during the football season? Like, how often does that come up? It's more, it happens every time there's obviously a score where it could be, you know, 20, 283, uh, you know, million dollar jackpot. Like, oh, 283 million dollars. It's 28 to three. Uh, you know, n- nobody really <laughs> talks about it, to be honest with you. Um, I was there. It was, I was freaking unbelievable. And I as describe Arthur Blank seeing a UFO and watching past him the way he was just completely stunned. And what we saw that, listen, funny story about that real quick. If you got time, I was oh, one of like 10 or 12 guys from around the world that got to vote for the MVP in the Super Bowl. Matt Ryan. I mean, it was 28 to three. My news director, Brian, my boss in the third quarter was on the phone with me and the chief of police of Atlanta planning the parade route. It was over, man. It was, it was done. And then they make a little comeback. And then Devontae Freeman doesn't pick up the block and you get the strip sack and then all this other. And then, you know, obviously it ended the way it did. I had to change my MVP boat to uh, the GOAT Tom Brady. I still, don't, uh, it, I still don't know why they didn't run. Like, why weren't they running when they had that lead? Like, why, why did Kyle Shanahan keep dropping back to pass? You realize that when after Julio Jones would arguably could have made the greatest catch in the history of the Super Bowl. When Matt Ryan threw it on the on the far on the near sideline, if you remember that play, when he talked, caught it with his fingertips, kept his feet in bounds, gave him a first down around like the twenty five yard line. All Kyle Shanahan had to do was take a knee, take a knee, take a knee, and then have Matt Bryant, your Pro Bowl kicker, take a thirty eight yarder. Game is over. It is done. There's no Brady comeback. Atlanta gets a Super Bowl just by taking a knee. But Kyle Shanahan, it was the evil genius. He thinks he's smarter than everybody else. And listen, man, if you go back, you guys, they made plays. The, the strip sack from Devontae Freeman was a, a game changer. There was another play where there was pressure up the middle when they had a go route and it was freaking six points if that happened. Atlanta couldn't have done anything worse. You guys couldn't have done anything better. And it will go down until the Falcons win as you know, the most embarrassing professional moment in this sports town by far. It's embarrassing. It's a joke. Yeah, and I've said on multiple occasions, the best catch in the game wasn't Julian Edelman. It was no. Julio Jones. That was by I far. I still cannot believe he stayed in bounds. And nobody's ever going to remember that catch because ever. they lost the game. I, I still cannot believe how he caught that. That was absolutely... And you could see the Patriots' sideline. They thought the game was over when he made that catch. Yeah, Over. It should have been over. It would have been, arguably, again, the greatest catch in the history of the Super Bowl because it would have led to Atlanta you know, winning the game. Um, you know, I had uh, a few sources inside that, um, you know, Falcons team gathering that evening and you know Shanahan was just by himself in the corner uh asking you know I I effed up I messed up it's just uh you know I think if you asked him man to man over beers if he had to do it over again he'd check his pride at the door but listen there's a lot of blame to go around 
Like, do you think Pat, you know, Peyton Manning, if he's the quarterback of that team, he's not handing the ball off. You don't think, right. you know, if Dan Quinn had a chance to do it over again. He's not telling his offensive coordinator. I don't care what passing play you want to do. We're not going to get sacked and lose field position. We're going to run the ball. So there's a lot of blame to go around. Shanahan obviously gets all, um, you know, nearly all of it in his parts because of his inability to run the ball. When my wife and daughter was asking me, how come I didn't run the ball? I mean, they got <laughs> it. It's just, it's not that complicated. Right, Brian? So, but yes, a lot of blame to go around again, Peyton Manning, if Brady was in that situation, you think he's dropping back the pass? They're just, no. just not right. So it, it does go on, Matt. I love Matt. My first year in Atlanta was Matt's first year in Atlanta, 2008. Grew up with the kid here uh, in town. But, you know, we talk smack and he gets it, you know, tough. We had <laughs> such right, a good that- conversation, Brian. Thanks for ruining the podcast. I'm I know. Never coming back. Everything was good. <laughs> I, know. Was golden. I know. I'm sorry about that. I, I'm sorry I had to go down memory lane, but I figured, hey, man, we got a guy on from Atlanta. Like, we got to ask Thanks. about it. It's like, you know, one of the biggest games in the history of Boston sports. It was, but listen, man, between the Braves run in 21, uh, one World Series, they're on the trajectory that I don't think uh, your team can catch. Georgia no Bulldogs chance. have won, uh, you know, back-to-back national championship. Yeah. Kirby's on a, just a freaking different level. It's still good to be around here. The Hawks are going to get better. The Falcons are going to get better. Um, so I, I'm a big believer of what this town is doing. I think it is, a, in a, you know, an underrated sports town. And, you know, listen, it's not Boston in terms of the history, in terms of the number of traditions, but I think you would take – encompassing what we have here college and pros um obviously you got a hockey team we could be getting one down the road a little little something that i might be breaking on your show i don't know we'll talk about Ooh. that in future podcast um, nice we'll talk we about know that they're expanding the so that'd be so, cool listen, man we got we got a long way to go to catch you guys in the overall number of titles what boston's doing um you know what the pats have done what the celtics are doing i love what you guys have built there but uh, don't sleep on the city brother All right, that is Zach Klein from WSB Channel 2 in Atlanta, the ABC affiliate there. Zach, thank you so much for the time, man. had a ton of fun. Your world, brother. I'm just living in it. Appreciate you. All right, great stuff there from Zach Klein as we get you ready for the Celtics and Hawks coming up on Saturday. And by the way, we should mention this. We are going to have a podcast up for you on Saturday night. So after that game on Saturday, we'll record after that one, most likely after a Celtics dominant win over the Atlanta Hawks in game one. And we'll also preview the Bruins first round matchup on that Saturday podcast. So make sure you remember, special Saturday podcast coming up for you this Saturday as the Celts and the Atlanta Hawks play game one of their best of seven. All right, time now to go to our mailbox. We'll bring in Jamie McClellan. And remember, you can email us at offthepike at gmail.com. Jamie, what's going on, man? Life is good. It's playoffs. I'm excited for Saturday. Ready to go, man. No more of this regular season stuff. No more of this load management sitting out back to backs. Let's go. Let's get it going, baby. First question. This is from Oliver in Watertown. He writes, hi, Brian. Uh, given the recent meltdown for the Minnesota Timberwolves, making big trades with Danny Ainge sure seems like a bad idea. That situation looks like it could quickly go full Nets mode, returning multiple high first-round picks for an over-the-hill star. Almost always in basketball trades, but the team gets the best player comes out ahead. Ainge seems to be the only GM who can win trades when dealing stars. If that were to happen again, how would that affect his legacy as a GM? Has anyone ever pulled off two or more similar trade heists? What do you think? I would say he has. Now, I understand the point about, I think he has had three of them. Now, I understand the point about the fact that he's talking about trading away the star player and getting the younger players back in return. But with the Rudy Gobert thing, everybody thought from the day they made that trade, that was idiotic, okay? (laughs) Like, I don't know why you'd give all that up for a guy that we've seen 
be exposed in the postseason multiple times. And you already had a big guy in Coral Anthony Towns, which I felt like the biggest advantage for Minnesota in the playoffs last year is playing five out with him spacing the floor. It just it didn't make sense from a fit perspective. And quite frankly, Walker Kessler, who was traded there, who just got picked last year, is going to finish top three in the rookie of the year voting. Like they already have a guy that's better than Rudy Gobert for them going forward. So that was just an idiotic trade. Also, the one that Oliver is referencing, of course, is the Jason Tatum trade, right? Where they get Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown when they got all those draft picks back, when they sent away an aging Kevin Garnett and an aging Paul Pierce. Now, part of the reason that trade happens is Prokroff had just bought in the Nets and they were under pressure to make moves there. They made an idiotic move. But so those are two of them, right, for Danny Ainge. I would add a third one is the Garnett trade. Now you can say, hey, that's kind of insider trading. He traded with his buddy Kevin McHale. But think about it. What did you really ultimately give up in that trade? You gave up Al Jefferson, who eventually, like, he wasn't for the modern-day NBA. He had a nice run in Minnesota. He was actually better in Utah. But you got Kevin Garnett, who was the defensive player of the year. And remember this. The Celtics didn't throw Rondo into that deal. Remember, they took back. Who did they take back? Like, I forget the other point. Was it Sebastian Telfair at the time that the Celtics <laughs> so, had? Yeah. yeah like, yeah. they didn't even give up Rondo. I don't know how Kevin McHale didn't get Rondo, who was like the young point guard prospect on the team. So when it comes to all that, I'd say Danny Ainge has had three of them. So if Danny Ainge called me up and want to make a trade, I, no. Hang up. I, I'm not doing that. Like, Brad, do not interact with this guy. Don't do it. All right, man. Who's up next? Okay, we got a quick one. I think this is in response to... Uh, a caller last week who was an Alabama guy. Mike writes, sorry, but some of these Alabama fans that want Billy fired are Rubes. Non-creative offense, they scored 41 points per game last year. What do they want? I somehow don't think offense was their issue. Yeah, I remember the call too, Jamie. And look, I understand that like Alabama fans, they're sort of like Patriots fans, right? Where they want the highest standard for the team. They want to be winning national championships, Mm -hmm. right? And I understand last year that offense took a step back, but I would also point to the fact that They didn't have all those first round pick receivers that they ordinarily have. And Bryce Young was dealing with injuries. If you go back to two years ago when they had Mechie, right, when they had those guys on the outside and they had a healthy Bryce Young, Bryce Young won the Heisman Trophy, right? They were Bryce Young was the best quarterback in college football. So I don't think it was a Bill O'Brien issue. I understand like and I've said this multiple times. I don't think Bill O'Brien is going to be like the best offensive coordinator in the NFL, but I think he's a good enough offensive coordinator. Yeah. I think he's proven that. Even in Houston, he had good offenses. His issue in Houston was never the offense. His issue in Houston was when he got the GM title, okay? And he traded away DeAndre Hopkins for a running back, okay? That's when he had his issues, more as a GM. I think he'll be fine as an offensive coordinator. And I think he'll, obviously, I don't think, I know he's going to be a massive improvement from what they had last year. Yeah, agreed. I mean, the, some of the best Patriots teams. He was the offensive coordinator. He's not sexy and young, but he gets the job done for sure. 2011, one of the best offenses yeah. of all time. The two they tight ends. that year. Um, unfortunately, Brian, we have to shift gears to the Red Sox. Oh, boy. I know. Get ready. This is from Calvin and Southie. Calvin writes, hey, Brian, love the show. I know the Bruins and Celtics playoffs are all the talk right now, but I have a quick Red Sox question for you. I feel that teams are going to be able to pitch around Devers now they don't have the threat of Xander and JD in the lineup around him. Do you think not having a great lineup around him will hurt his production a noticeable amount? Or is he such a well-rounded batter that he will continue to elevate his play at the plate like he has in the past few years? I think Rafi in and of himself is going to be fine, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. we even saw it in that game Wednesday night. He hits the home run. Rafi's going to hit. But I do agree with the fact that there's not enough around him. Like, here's the problem, Jamie. 
Losing Adam Duvall shouldn't be panic time for your team. And Duvall had a great start to the season. And you know me, I loved the deal when they actually went out and got Adam Duvall because I thought, okay, elite defense and home runs. But this guy has an injury history. He just had surgery last year. And he was really the only other pop in your lineup right now, right? Like you're still waiting for Cassis to get going, right? And I understand he's a young guy. But the guys like Turner and Yoshida, they get to start hitting for legitimate power. Verdugo's doing what he's supposed to do. Verdugo has transitioned into a leadoff hitter. He even said it before the game the other day. He wants to go back to leadoff, and he was in the leadoff spot on Thursday. So Verdugo's fine. Like, he understands who he is as a player now. But the reality is with Devers, like, he's the only landmine in the lineup. He's the only guy that you're saying, hey, we got to be careful with that. this guy. You give up a solo shot to Justin Turner, you're like, whatever. But when Devers is at the plate, that's when you're paying attention. So there's just not enough bats, quality bats in that lineup right now. And it was abundantly clear against the Rays, who just swept the Red Sox, of course, and without Adam Duvall in the lineup. That's what it is. And part of it is story. Like, not having stories noticeable right now for a couple of reasons. A, he's an elite defender, okay? And I understand, like, Red Sox fans were all upset about the fact that Trevor Story's not playing. He played in only 94 games last year. But he has legit pop. I felt he'd get back to 25 home runs. He's done that multiple times. And he's an elite defender. So now everything is messed up. Like, now Kike's back in the outfield now, but Kike was playing short. He was legitimately the worst shortstop in baseball, or actually the worst defender, the most damaging defender at the beginning of the season. So everything has sort of gotten messed up right now, and they just don't have a deep enough team from a position standpoint. And then the other portion of this is... Your starting pitching has been, it was good one to turn through, but Whitlock was not good. Sale was absolutely atrocious. Mm-hmm. Your starting pitching's not good enough right now. And you're putting a lot on that bullpen. You're asking a lot of that bullpen early on this season. Like these guys are barely going five half the time. Other than that, it's been great. <laughs> no, it's just it's just a lot of question marks and they've all kind of gone south. But, you know, instead of question marks, you need certain things. And they just don't have any certain things on the squad, basically, outside of Devers. Yeah. Um, yep. this again, kind of goes into the roster building. This is from Dave in North Carolina. Dave writes, I want your take on what the additional $102 million the Red Sox spent on payroll over the Rays buys us. Uh, and off of that, who gets fired and where's the accountability? And then he lays out a couple stats, basically that the Rays are in first in terms of pitching and hitting their ERA is 2.17 and their, their OPS is 945, which is insane. Um, he writes after that, Cora can't be absolved. This is the second year in a row. The Red Sox have come out of the gate playing sloppy baseball and Heim and higher management appear to be in witness protection. Imagine the reaction in New York at the Yankees field of this team. Thought we were a big market. At least we used to be. Ouch. Yeah, the Rays thing is really embarrassing, right? And look, they've had a lot of guys that have, like, Jan, uh, Diaz did not hit for power last year. He's already hitting for power. He's hitting home runs left and right. Arena is hitting for more power than he did a year ago. Now, obviously, that guy has power, but he's hitting for more this year. Wander Franco is back, and he's healthy, and he's an incredibly talented young player, right? I still don't, they got him, this is another thing that Heim should learn. Like, they signed him to a big contract mm-hmm. very early on, really? Wander Franco did, right? But I don't know how they keep doing this. It's really unbelievable to me that they keep finding all these pitchers. And look, Jeffrey Springs went out of this game for Tampa on Thursday. He was the best pitcher in Major League Baseball up until the start. And I get it. It's three starts. Hadn't give up a run. And he's striking out like 40% of batters. Okay. This is like the only guy from 2020 that you wanted the Red Sox to keep right now. He wasn't good with the Red Sox, but how did Heim not know, right? Like this guy was on your team. He was legitimately on your team. Now he's turned into a great starter for Tampa Bay, that crappy 2020 year, like that could have been the diamond in the rough that Heim was looking for. And he didn't even keep that guy. Like the one guy, like now he's just succeeding with Tampa. But I don't know how they do it year after year. I think it's embarrassing that they have nobody at their games. 
I think it's embarrassing that they have no payroll because imagine what that organization would be if they were in a decent market and they actually had like an ownership group that cared about the team. It's just it's it's bad. It, I, I don't think it's good for baseball that the Rays are this juggernaut, right? I mean, I really don't. Like, I mean, the park is a joke, Jamie. I mean, by the way, you know the Red Sox have now lost 13 straight there? I, I did hear that. Oh, maybe I'm just jealous of the Rays, but they get me worked. That I hate everything about that team. I mean, I, I think part of the problem, though, is that it's that they have such a small payroll. It's like they might not be the Rays if they had a $200 million payroll. And the Red Sox, they look at this team and they think, oh, we should be like them. They just have this identity crisis. They have a GM who's a small market team. They have the 15th highest payroll, kind of middle of the pack. And then they act like a yeah. big market team in terms of their prices and stuff. It's just they don't they have no idea who they are, it feels like. Yeah. No, you're spot on about that. And the other component to this about the Rays is like their 12th guy is going to be better than most teams are the 12th guy, right? Like their 13th guy is going to be better than other teams. They're just so deep. And the thing that they do is, all right, you got a lefty going. We're going to load up on righties today. Oh, you got a righty going. We're loading up on lefties. They, they just have so much versatility. Their lineup is so pliable. Now, we'll see. They have all these postseason failures. Like, they never get right. through. I know they made it to the World Series in the COVID year, and they made it to the World Series like a long, long time ago when, unfortunately, they beat the Red Sox in 08 when David Price came out of the bullpen. But they've never really put it all together in the postseason. And that's one thing that we haven't seen with this team. Maybe that's where the payroll is hurting them. All right, Jamie, good stuff there with the email box. And if you do want to email us, it is off to pike at gmail.com. And you can also leave us a voicemail at 617-396-7172. I do want to pick up on the Sox, though. A couple of thoughts. So as we alluded to, they got swept by the Rays. They've now lost 13 straight to the Rays, which is great. We just talked about that. And I want to go back to uh, Wednesday, I should say, first. So you go down 9-7 to in that game. And you make the comeback. Rafi had the blast to cut it to 8-7. to seven, But the Sox, of course, could not come all the way back. They lose 9-7. And they get swept in the series. But Chris Sale in that game Wednesday was the problem again. The final line is four innings, seven hits, five earned, one bomb, and two walks. Now, the defense did not help him. It was a joke. In the first inning, <laughs> Bobby Dahlback's playing shortstop. He boots a ball. And eventually, a Rosarena goes deep and... More on that in a second in terms of sale, but that made it three to nothing. Bobby Dahlback makes an error in the first inning. Who would have thought that would happen? A guy that didn't play short before this year. Okay, then you have a bunt in the third inning. The Red Sox actually read it, right? There's runners on first and third. So Casas charges, okay? Chang, who shouldn't be on the Red Sox, doesn't cover first. So the Red Sox don't even have a play. So they just load up the bases then Diaz sack fly makes it four to one. Then Franco doubles make it makes it six to one. But this is just embarrassing. They can't make plays in the field. They don't know what they're doing because these guys are not supposed to be playing in these positions. By the way, the game on Thursday, they were again hurt by a bunt. If you look at that fifth inning, they're up three to one. The Red Sox actually had a lead. I mean, remember where you were when the Red Sox had a lead over the race. They were up three to one, but Tampa comes back. They take a four three lead after an Arena RBI single. Then Blyer hits Franco. By the way, Blyer has not been good. So bases chucked with two down. Margot Bunce. The Red Sox don't have a play. They make it five to three. This guy actually singled on a bunt with the bases loaded. The Red Sox couldn't make a play. And then Ramirez doubles after that. Eight three game. It's over. But because the Red Sox didn't have or didn't make the play on the bunt, they couldn't get out of the inning. So they couldn't keep the game close because they couldn't make a play on the bunt. So then it's five three. Then it's eight three. And then the game's over. 
So you have all these guys playing out of position, whether it's Kike, who was playing short at the beginning of the season. Now Dahlback's playing short. Chang is fine playing second base. He just wasn't ready to play in that particular game. But the problem is now, the defense entering Thursday, worst in Major League Baseball, minus 13 defensive runs saved. They've made 10 errors, tied for the second most. This is what happens when you don't have a complete roster. And this has now happened for a couple years with Heimblum. Right now, the Red Sox are the worst defensive team in baseball. But back to Sale. Right now, he has no command whatsoever. The home run to a Rosarena, that was supposed to be a fastball down and in. Instead, it was on the outside portion of the plate. And it's not, his fastball does not have the velocity right now to play the way where you can miss and you're cool, right? Because your stuff's so good. Like when Sale was in his prime, his stuff was so good. He could miss his spot. Nobody's going to hit it. He's not there right now. So he missed the spot. A Rosarena can easily hit that the opposite way out of the ballpark because it's in his swing path. Okay. Then the Franco double. That's a slider that was middle, middle. And it didn't have much bite on it, right? Eight inches of horizontal break. And just to put that into context, Chris Sale for his career, he's over 14 inches of horizontal break during his prime in terms of the slider. That one too, Franco, eight inches. So not nearly good enough. And the problem is he's middle, middle. Now, the horizontal break on that slider throughout the season is around 10. When in his prime, he's in that 14 territory. So the slider has not been consistent enough. Now, you could attribute some of that to small sample size. It's early and he's had some really bad ones, had a really bad one to Mount Castle of the Orioles as well. So it could be some of that small sample size, but it's definitely something to monitor because the numbers are way down on the slider. So what does that lead to when he has misses in the zone and he doesn't have his command? It leads to loud contact and it leads to walks. So entering Thursday, Chris Sale, 48.6% hard hit rate. That's balls off the bat, 95 plus miles an hour. So think about that. Nearly 50% of the batted balls against Chris Sale are north of 95 miles an hour. Everything. They're all rockets, right? That is 58th of 67 qualified starters. For his career, he's at 31.1%, which is elite. He's at 48.6% this season. The barrel percentages, so the percentages of balls that are barreled up, 10.8% is 58th out of those 67 qualifiers. Career's at 6.0, he's up to 10.8. He's given up five home runs, tied for the third most in baseball. How about his ERA? 11.25. You know where that ranks out of 67 qualified starters? 67th. In other words, he's last, okay, in ERA. His career is 309. He's at 11.25. His whip. 208, 64th out of 67, career is 105. So he's up more than one, more than one, okay? Unreal, his opponent's batting average is 321. That is 61st, career he's at 220. 220 up to 321, so up about 100 points. The walk rate, 10.9%, 55th out of 67 qualified starters, career's at 5.4. So he's doubled his walk rate, he's doubled his whip, He's doubles his opponent's batting average. I mean, he's almost quadrupled his ERA. His hard hit rate has gone through the roof, right? So the problem is his command is just atrocious right now. And the thing that I'm starting to get concerned about is the velocity. I told you before the season, if the velocity is close to that 95, he's going to be good. But the problem is the velocity right now, 93.4 miles per hour with the four-seamer, 92.8 miles an hour with the sinker that he's actually throwing a lot more than he has at any point in his career, which is an interesting dynamic too. So that four-seamer was at 94.9 in limited action last year, and the sinker was at 93.3. So right now, he looks like he was in 2021, 93.6. So he's actually down from 2021, the first year back from the TJ, in terms of the velocity on the fastball. 
and he's at 92.6 on the sinker. That was at 92.8 this year, so he's down on that. 2018, prime Chris Sale, 95.2 on the fastball. Remember, this year he's at 93.4. And then you look at the two-seamer, the sinker, he's at 93.2 and 18. He's at 92.8 right now. So the velocity is down. So from my perspective, he needs to get that back if he wants to have a second act, right? He either needs to get the velocity back or he has to like change something about his approach. Like remember what happened with CC Sabathia? He extended his career because he developed a new pitch. He started throwing a cutter. I don't think that's what's going to happen with Chris Sale. But we're now at the point where this guy's making $27.5 million. I don't want to hear about how bad he is. Like, I understand that he feels bad for his teammates, but I don't need to hear that every time. He signed this contract prior to what? The 2019 season, but it didn't kick in until 2020. He pitched 25 innings in July of 2018. He pitched five in August in 2018. He pitched 12 in September, and then he sucked in the postseason. He pitched five innings in just one game. So why did you need to extend him then? It was just a boneheaded decision where they looked back at the Lester situation and they gave it to him. Like he had another year in 19 on the contract. What happened at the end of 19? Oh, he got hurt. So why didn't you just look and say, hey, we have another year, then we make a decision. And then you would have avoided this whole thing. So since the extension has kicked in, 14 starts, 60 and a third. Okay, since he signed that contract, 60 and a third innings, 477 ERA, 146 whip, 276 opponent's batting average. And right now, he's been the worst starting pitcher in Major League Baseball. It's just, I'm starting to really get to the point where it's it's not fun anymore to talk about Chris Sale. It's just aggravating. And I don't want him to go up to these press conferences anymore. Tell us how bad he sucks. Tell us why. Tell us what you're not doing. Tell us the problems you're having. Don't tell us that you feel bad. I mean, it's just, it's gone in a completely wrong direction for Chris Sale. And we used to love it when he'd say stuff like this, but now it just rings hollow. And then the other thing I just mentioned, so Sale's a problem. This team could be irrelevant in September, way before then, I should say. Could be irrelevant in June, could be irrelevant in July. And remember how bad that looked in September at Fenway Park last year in August when nobody was there. This is where you start to worry about, not me personally, but this is where Haim should start to get worried, right? Because really, what's his great big move for the team in terms of the big league club? I'm not talking about what he did to the farm system. I'm talking about what he's done for the Boston Red Sox, not the organization, just the Boston Red Sox. Whitlock's like his move. That's it, right? Where he got in the rule five. Other than that, Kike, who's a platoon guy, had one good year. Renfro hit 31 bombs. He was gone. Traded for Schwarber. He's gone. Like, that was a good move, but he's not here. Pavetta, that's a good trade. I mean, Workman and Embry, great trade. But what, he's the fourth guy in a rotation? Maybe second on this team, actually. Adam Duvall, nice signing, but he's injured. Yoshida, maybe it turns out to be a good signing, but we'll see. Verdugo, I mean, he's a good player, but you traded Mookie for him, okay? Like, he's a fine player, but you traded Mookie for him. So there's really nothing there. Like, Bayo is not his. That's... Uh, was a Dave Dombrowski prospect. Casas, Dave Dombrowski prospect. Winkowski maybe as a reliever, but that was in the Benintendi trade. And this is a very small sample size of Winkowski being a good reliever. So I would just be really worried about my future if I'm high bloom right now because it does not look good. All right, that brings us to our greatest Boston bet of the week. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. So I'm looking at this game coming up on Friday night. The Red Sox open up a four-game series against the Angels. It's going to be crazy here in Boston locally because Otani's scheduled to pitch Marathon Monday and you have the Bruins playing on Monday night and you have the Celtics playing on Tuesday. If the Celtics playing on Saturday, it's going to be a crazy weekend. But for Friday, I have, you can do alternate strikeout lines. I have Hoke, alternate strikeout line five, Rafi a hit, Otani a hit, Trout a hit, and I'm going to have Turner get a hit against the lefty and Sandoval. So that's what I like. How, um, let me start that. 
Hauk, alternate five strikeouts, Rafi a hit, Otani a hit, Trout a hit, and Turner hit. So that's my same game parlay for Friday at Fenway. Hopefully, it's a Red Sox win. They need, I'm not going to the money line with the Red Sox, okay? I can't do it. I'm just going with the same game parlay for that one. All right, remember, we're going to be back with you. Special edition of Off the Pike on Saturday. We are going to record right after the Celtics and the Atlanta Hawks finish up game one. So we will have a pod out for you on Saturday night. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in at 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. Oh, by the way, on that pod, we're going to chat with Lam McHugh from the NHL on TNT, and we'll preview the Bruins' first-round matchup with him. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you guys on Saturday.